Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 123. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, the doctor is in. Dr. Kick-Ass. Mike, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No worries. I was telling you before we started recording, you are the guy on the internet that people loop me in on whenever there's a question about jujitsu injuries. I think pretty much everyone I know is following you, but why don't you introduce yourself just to bring the audience up to speed if they're not familiar with who you are? Sure. So my name is Mike Pekarski. I'm a doctor of physical therapy. You're in Canada, correct? Yeah, I'm in Vancouver, BC. So how it works in the States is to work as a physical therapist. The new kind of um, standard is to be a doctor of physical therapy. So if you had like a bachelor's or a master's, you can still treat your grandfathered in, but at a certain point, they're trying to like to progress the profession. So all physical therapists should at some point be a doctor of physical therapy. I'm also a board certified orthopedic clinical specialist, which is just means that I'm a little bit more kind of like prepared for orthopedic medicine or like musculoskeletal issues, which is kind of what we deal with in jujitsu. I'm also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. I also used to fight professional MMA. So, you know, I'm someone who, I mean, I love jiu-jitsu. So they kind of, in my mind, you know, physical therapy and jiu-jitsu go hand in hand. Yeah, that's me in a nutshell. I, uh, I developed my Instagram, which is Dr. Kickass, which is really just kind of like made around kind of like educating people on kind of like their body, like, and, and pretty much how it relates to jiu-jitsu or how can we keep someone as healthy as possible? Well, actually, I was going to ask this. I mean, I've seen a lot of different types of doctorates, but I'm not familiar with anyone who's had a doctorate in kick-ass. And I'd just like to <laughs> learn a little bit more about the training involved. And that, that's a very unique distinction. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. It just, I guess like you do jiu-jitsu long enough and then you eventually go the, the fighting route. It just kind of like falls in your, you know, on your lap. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, like I said earlier, you're quite well known on the Instagram scene for your really awesome and informative Instagram. One of the few that I actually follow, you know, so much of Instagram is it's like happy, feel good imagery. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make quality educational content on Instagram, but it does exist. Yeah. You know, Andy from School of Grappling comes to mind. Your stuff comes to mind. So I really appreciate that. And on that note, the reason I wanted to have you on was because I wanted to have a, a high-level conversation about injury rehab. Now, every injury is different, right? I don't think you can prescribe, I mean, maybe you can, you tell me, I don't think you can prescribe standard injury guidance for rehabbing any single injury. I'm sure it differs case to case, but surely there are some myths that we can bust, some best practices that we can, we can put out there. And I was hoping I could leverage your experience to maybe get into that. Yeah. So starting conversation here, something that kind of led to me thinking I should re reach out to you. I recently, during uh, COVID times here, I injured my Achilles tendons. And basically the backstory is I'm built like a dwarf from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like I'm short and I'm stocky. And that body type lends itself well to jujitsu. But without jujitsu on the go, I was looking for other types of activities I could do to burn some cardio. And I took up jogging. And jogging is something I've never really done, never really got into. And I basically overshocked my Achilles tendons really, really bad. So I figured, okay, well, I've never had this happen. What can I do about it? And I started Googling around. And one of the first things I learned <laughs> was that everything I had ever been told about rehabbing an injury is either wrong or out of date. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and a lot of the things that you would intuitively 
think makes sense with an injury like this, it's wrong or out of date. Like, for example, I remember what I learned from injury rehab was when I went to high school, you know, they told me ice, you know, ice compression and elevation. And there was like, that's how you deal with an injury. I remember them teaching me that in gym class. And then I remember hearing a few years later that actually, no, it's rice, it's rest, ice, compression and elevation. And, you know, flash forward 20 years to now, and I'm looking up how to, and granted, I, I could be wrong now. I don't know. Like, there's so much stuff on the internet, but I'm looking around around at how to deal with an Achilles injury, and they're actually saying, no, you don't necessarily want to rest it too much. You don't want to, you know, ice is maybe not actually that beneficial. And some of the things that you might think would help, like stretching, maybe it actually isn't the best for this particular type of injury. So, I mean, with that said, I'll hand the torch over to you, and you tell me if if I'm wrong on this or if I'm right on this, because I'd like to really clarify what the best practices are for general injury rehab, especially this one that I'm dealing with now. Yeah. Okay. So we'll start with yours and then we'll talk to kind of like general rehab. So the thing that you're talking about is it sounds like, and again, I can't really diagnose over, you know, you telling me what's going on. Pretty much what would happen was in a perfect world, if an athlete comes to me, I really want to do an assessment. Like I can have a hypothesis of what happened, which it sounds like with you is it sounds like you probably have an acute tendonitis because you overloaded yourself, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it is, right? So, you know, so people say, I have a hurt elbow. What do I do? What are some exercises? I have no idea because I don't know what's wrong with your elbow. Like I needed to assess it. Like it could be a tendonitis. It could be something else. It could be a nerve issue. It could be like a ligament damage, right? And and some of those things you might treat differently. It could even be from the neck, right? Like sometimes people have issues in their arms or their legs, which is coming from their spine. So a... Well, what kind of internet doctor are you? I mean, you're an internet (laughs) doctor. You're supposed to tell me that I need to get like a copper bracelet and I need to take some alpha brain and I'm good to go. I wish I could actually like, I feel like I'm too ethical to like take people up on that. Like I I wish that I could monetize my thing more for that reason. I am positive alpha brain would give you money if you let them. Oh my God. (laughs) So we'll we'll take yours. So jujitsu people are really good at overdoing things. So it sounds like for you, it's just the fact that you, you started a new activity that you, your body wasn't prepared for. You probably ran too much and then you overloaded the tendon. So when we deal tendinopathy, whether this is Achilles, which is rare in jujitsu unless it's your situation, which is a jujitsu athlete picks up running after not running for, you know, since high school or whatever, you know, in jujitsu, you know, it is common to have like some kind of lateral or medial tendinopathy or a golfer's elbow or tennis elbow, which is so much gripping. So the key thing you have to differentiate is what phase is it in? Is it acute or chronic? And the reason why is because if it's an acute inflammation, usually like kind of like the the resting, when I say rest, it's activity modification. So in your case, mm-hmm. like let's say you ran, it got flared up and you've been dealing with this for maybe like two, three weeks. Usually at that point, what I would say is let's reduce some of your, your running or, or take it out. Maybe we do some some things that don't aggravate it. So maybe we do some general strengthening. We wait for that to subside. Then we would do some specific Achilles strengthening exercises, and then we would gradually reload you, right? So like, you know, I had this patient once and, you know, I want you to go for a run. Let's see how it is. He comes back. Thankfully, he was okay. He's like, I just ran eight miles. I've never run eight miles. We're like, why would you run eight miles after not running? Like, (laughs) anyway, so that's what I would kind of do with you if it's an acute irritation. So now we'll take the more common in jujitsu, especially with like some kind of like elbow tendinopathy. It's like, I have this elbow pain. I've been dealing with it for six months. Well, at that point, it's no longer acute inflammation. Now it's more of a, a chronic inflammation. So what happens is that tendon starts to develop microtrauma. Then it starts to develop. There's actually like some kind of like nerve generation, which makes it highly sensitive, which is why it's so painful. At that point, if you've waited of several months, resting is not going to do it anymore because now there's actual there's changes to the structure of the tendon. So now it's more of a graded exposure of loading, appropriate loading to that tendon so that we can make it more resilient, right? So like, again, for you, like, let's say this is an acute tendinopathy, you know, resting at this point might calm it down for the moment, but then once you start to run, it's just going to flare up again. So for you, you know, like when I'm working with someone that has some kind of Achilles tendinopathy, I would do some kind of calf 
calf raise variation or something like that. Whether it's double leg, single leg, some kind of modification to gradually build it up. And when you're dealing with tendinopathy, it's kind of tricky because, you know, like there's a, a lot of times in rehab, we don't really want to go into pain. But with tendinopathy, we actually have to create some kind of stress, which might create irritation. So when I'm dealing with tendinopathy, like I'm okay with going to like mild to maybe like low moderate levels of pain as long as the next day it's back to your baseline, right? And I, I think that's what's frustrating is because people don't do stuff it, like, you know, because yes. they, they either it hurts so they stop doing it so they're not loading it pro properly. So again, it's it just not getting strong enough or they overload it. So like for my role as a physiotherapist dealing with someone like you is I'm more of like a guide to say, based on what you're telling me, this is what I'd recommend. If within like 24 hours after you do the exercise, it's flared up, then we know it's too much. Let's say in 24 hours, it's back to your baseline. We're good to go. And then we slowly progress. And we kind of use that protocol to kind of see. So if like, let's say we push it, like you go from double leg to single leg calf raises and it gets flared up. Maybe we have to back off those single leg. We do double leg for another week, etc. You take like elbow again, let's say there's an athlete dealing with, with jujitsu because there's so much emphasis on the grip. And then you take those athletes that are doing gripping and then they're doing like general strength and conditioning, which is a lot of barbell training. It's very easy for someone to flare up their elbow. And again, what I would do with that athlete is first I want to make sure this is in fact elbow tendinopathy. Assuming I, I, I felt like it was, we would do some kind of variation of a wrist, whether it's like an end range isometric or a wrist curl in some fashion low resistance might even be no no weight and then you build them up for those athletes i'd also take away you know say like hey maybe we don't do barbell training you know maybe you have to do some kind of modified lifts or something where you don't need to use your hands because again that's extra stress that your body's not adapting to you know you're dealing with that athlete i also recommend if like you're a gi athlete like maybe you start focusing on no gi grips for a little bit which one mm -hmm. overall will help your jujitsu but then also you're not getting that accumulation of stress from jujitsu as well right because right. you know if, if let's say you're doing the rehab you're doing jujitsu with grips you're doing your barbell barbell training you're just kind of like overloading the system so like with that sort of thing i kind of treat it like an elimination diet like we kind of take all the aggravating activities out and then we slowly do the thing which is in my mind would be the specific strengthening till we get it to a certain point and then we start to slowly add activity so maybe then you know in a case like yours like you know we start doing some either isometric or some you know, calf raise variation, then you still want to go running. Like, which again, for you as a jujitsu athlete, do you need to run? No, you don't. Like there's other cardios that we could do. I know with COVID, like the world's a little bit different, you know, like whether we do something like biking, rowing, swimming, etc. you know what I mean? Cause you're only doing it for cardio or maybe you, you enjoy it, but let's say you're like, I want to get back to running. Then we do a slow graded exposure where instead of just running three, five miles, like maybe you run like one or two minutes. We see how you do. And then you slowly ramp it up. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you touched on something there that I think is very fundamental to the mindset of jujitsu people, which is they tend to only have one speed <laughs> and yeah. that is go. It's yeah, like yeah. stop and go. They're like a, like a cheap Ford focus or something. There's like no, no graduation of speed. It's like, I'm either not moving or I'm moving like crazy. I remember Oliver Taza was on the show of a few years ago. And at the time he'd suffered a really gnarly knee injury. And we talked to him at first and he was talking about how he was rehabbing and basically, you know, wasn't really doing much in the way of physical activity. He was basically trying to take it easy because he wanted his knee to get better. Mm -hmm. And then we talked to him again in a few months when he was back on the show. And he basically had, it sounded like if I understood correctly, he went from like no jujitsu to hardcore sparring yeah, <laughs> like yeah, almost yeah. overnight. And I remember thinking, what the fuck, man? Yeah, like yeah. you're, you're not going to help your, your situation here. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, he's young and a world-class athlete. Yeah. And so for him, he can pull that off. But for me, I have found the same and I made the same mistake with this injury, which is my first reaction was to do nothing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I, when I suffered this injury, I basically just stopped moving around for a while and then one day I decided, you know what, back to running, back to yeah, full yeah. speed. And immediately, of course, I made the situation much worse. And being the dumbass that I am, <laughs> it never even occurred to me that I should scale up and go yeah. to things like calf raises and yeah, maybe yeah. things like pogo jumps, you know, just, yeah. just to get some movement. I kind of went from like zero right back to where I was before. And it never even occurred to me that I should do some sort of like gradual increase because I just thought, oh, well, calf raises, that's not real exercise. Yeah. And I guess what I didn't realize is that's, that's kind of the point. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting that you say that. And I think if there's like one point across that I'd want to get from this podcast 
is that a lot of times, you know, jiu-jitsu athletes or combat athletes or fighters, they deal with these injuries and they don't want to get medical advice. And, and I get it because if you look at the traditional model, you know, you have an injury, you go to your primary care physician, they'll usually say, oh, stop the activity, which is, you know, if you do jiu-jitsu, you're like, I'm not going to do this. You know what I mean? Or they give you just like trying to general advice, like you said early on, which we can get to, like just ice it and rest it. So I get why they don't want to go to their physician. But really like the way, like kind of like my job first as a physiotherapist is really being that guy. Like doesn't matter what the injury is, right? Like, and I think what helps being a sport focused, especially towards jujitsu is I understand the sport. So I know how we can scale the sport. So like my first job is let's guide you. And then the other stuff, like giving people exercises or doing some manual therapy, all that other stuff, like that's there. It's important, but it's extra. Like really my job is to guide them. So again, you know, like I think it is a really crucial if you're a serious grappler is that you have someone that you can talk to who can kind of help you out because I'm guilty of it myself. Like I have an injury, like I don't necessarily listen to my own advice. Like now that I'm getting older, I'm starting to, but like I have injuries and be like, Oh, I'm fine. Like I can't raise my arm over my head. I can still roll, you know? Yeah. I, I'm just like, I just, I just won't let him arm bar me. Exactly. Problem solved. And like you, people are like, what do you, yeah, I'm just like, you know, I'll just roll with that blue belt and then I know they're not going to arm bar me. But you know, yeah. like I said, like there's things that you could do in, in, you know, later on I can talk about like one of my more recent injuries and how I dealt with it. And it helps me both as a physiotherapist and a jiu-jitsu player, like when I deal with my own injuries, because I see it from the athlete perspective, but I also see it from the healthcare perspective. Yeah, it's funny. I remember back in the early days when I was a white belt, I and much younger and dumber at the time, apparently. <laughs> but I remember I was doing stand up, and you know, jujitsu people doing stand up is always a terrible idea. Oh yeah. And me and another white belt were going at it, and I zigged and he zagged, and his thumb got me right in the eye, oh. and it tore a piece of the cornea off. Like it was, it was gnarly, and I had to go. To, I remember like it was the freakiest injury I'd ever had. I went to the hospital. They put some eye drops in me. And the next day I was back on the mats wearing an eye patch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like in retrospect, what was I yeah, yeah, thinking? I like I could have gotten some awful infection and lost my eye. Like what a terrible idea. But there is something about jujitsu people where they're just, no matter what happens, they're always trying to figure out like, how can I get back on the mat tomorrow, even to my detriment, yeah. right? I've seen people who have been on the mats and have suffered a terrible injury while training and then have just continued training. I mean, hell, I've done that, yeah. right? Where like I've clearly broken or dislocated something and I I just, I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, there's 20 more minutes of sparring here. If I just put some tape on it, I'm sure it'll, you know, I'm sure it'll stay exactly. on, <laughs> which is a terrible, terrible thing to do. But when you're in the moment, you know, and you've, you've been sparring and you've got adrenaline going, sometimes the injury doesn't feel as bad as it actually is. Right. True. I recall one time I was rolling with a guy and I sprawled and I felt something pop and I thought, okay, something happened with my toe, but it feels fine. So I just put some tape on it. And I got back home and I untaped my toe and my toe had like turned black. Oh, wow. <laughs> so clearly wow. something really bad had happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess the lesson I got out of that, I mean, luckily I was fine, but I guess the lesson I got out of that was just because it feels fine in the moment does not mean it's fine, right? Weird things happen because of adrenaline. True. Very true. Yeah. It's funny. Like I remember like, you know, I, I was thinking about like shin conditioning and I was like, talk to someone and like, I don't think my shins were like, especially conditioned, but like when I would fight, I would like throw kicks, no shin guards. Like I don't feel it. It's just because adrenaline, you, you like, you don't feel things. Like I remember like you'd be in a fight and I'd be punched and it doesn't hurt. Literally. It feels like a bell is rung. Like it feels like you're like kind of like a, a gong, but I'm, like you cognitively know that was bad, but like, it doesn't hurt. And like later it'll start hurting. Same thing happens in jiu-jitsu Cause again, you say the same adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting one. I mean, and I've never been like a competitive athlete, but there's just something about jujitsu that draws you in. And it's just like, you, you're always thinking, I just, just one more round. It can't I be know. that bad an injury, but I kind of wish in retrospect that I'd been more scientific in the way that I dealt with these things. And I, and I rehab them, I guess where we can go from here is maybe we can talk about some you know, we talked earlier about like the whole rice thing. Yeah. I mean, is that still true? Like if you get, if you get an injury, is that still good advice? So well, here's the thing. So you have to, you have to think of like the physiological, like what happens with a, a tissue injury, right? So you have some kind of injury. And again, it doesn't matter what the tissue is necessarily, whether it's a ligament, whether it's a tendon, whether it's muscle, soft tissue, et cetera. Essentially what was happening is there's some kind of trauma where that structure's capacity to endure stress was overloaded, right? So there's some kind of rupture, whether it's micro trauma, big, big tears, et cetera. 
Now your body starts going through the process to kind of repair it. So what happens is it sends these hormones to that area. And you know, that's why some of those hormones are actually increased pain sensitivity, which is why even injury, things hurt more. And, and that's kind of like your body's way of saying, something happened, stay off this so it can heal. You know, so pain's a little bit more sensitive and swelling, swelling's actually part of the healing process. If you don't actually go through that inflammatory response, healing doesn't actually happen. So, you know, you're getting those hormones, now it's starting to, you know, bring in some structure so we can actually start to repair the tissue, right? So, but you have to think that like, let's say there's, there's tissue damage, like it doesn't put it back to the way it was. It's just really trying to connect the dots. So what, what is scar tissue? Scar tissue is just really weak tissue, which then gradually what you do is you slowly load it through everyday activity and that tissue eventually becomes stronger and it can like regain the resiliency it had pre-injury. So when it comes to rice, you know, so do you want to rest completely? No. It's more of like you want to go through a protection phase, which means avoiding irritating it further, right? So there's some things that you can do, like you don't necessarily need to sit at home and do nothing. You're like, especially if it's something like an elbow injury, like you can still be walking or, or moving around, right? Then what we could do is the kind of the, the approach with anti-inflammatories or use anti-inflammatories is, is somewhat controversial because in some situations, like we actually don't want to take an anti-inflammatory because now you're blunting the inflammatory response needed for healing, right? So obviously it depends on how much pain you're in. Then we can look at ice. What does ice actually do is I don't think ice actually reduces swelling significantly. I think it more has an effect on the pain, right? So I think what it does is it reduces the nerve conduction. So when, you know, the nerve is trying to send the pain signal to your brain, it's stopped by the ice, which is usually why you put ice on. It feels pretty good for a few minutes and then you take the ice off and then it starts hurting again. So generally like what I would do is there's a different acronym which is called peace and love. So peace is protect, elevate, avoid anti-inflammatories, compression, education. So again, we want to avoid aggravating activities. We want to elevate because again, we, we do want to, it, it's not that the inflammation is bad, it's more of the accumulation of swelling is bad. So we want to we want to start the inflammatory process, but then we want to get it out, which is where the compression or elevation comes in. Ice again for me, like how I use ice as a physiotherapist is yeah, I kind of have to read the person. So if like someone's having like high amounts of resting pain, like again you're just sitting there and wherever the injury is, it's hurting really bad. Like I would rather ice than be in that situation. But again, if like you know whatever's hurt isn't really hurting unless you do the activity, I wouldn't ice right? So it kind of depends on the person. When it comes to surgery too, like you have to think like if you have an ACL tear and you go through and you get a reconstruction or any kind of surgery, it's going to be a few months before you get back to whatever you're doing. So at that point, you might as well just ice because that'll like help control the pain because it's not like you can get back to the mats tomorrow. Like you might as well just kind of like ice to reduce your pain so you feel better. Then the, the, the other acronym would be love, which would be called load, optimism, vascularization and exercise. And what that means is when there's an injury, again, so there's some tissue damage, now your body starts creating that scar tissue and it's weak tissue, right? So we wanna do slow, appropriate loading through that tissue so it can get stronger again. It doesn't matter whether it's a ligament, tendon, muscle, everything responds to load, they just respond at a different speed. So ligaments can still get stronger. Right, like if they have a blood slow, something like an ACL, if it's completely torn, it won't grow back. But something like the MCL, which has a pretty good blood supply, in some cases can grow back. So it can reconnect and you don't necessarily need surgery. But what that means is it's appropriate loading. It could be gentle motion on a bike, it could be walking, it could be squatting. I tend to use very joint specific isometrics, which start the, the process so I can be very specific to where I think the injury is. You know, optimism, that depends on the athlete because some some athletes can handle things differently. Like some, when they have an injury, freak out. They don't know what to do. And, you know, again, me being an athlete myself, I can talk to that athlete and kind of explain the situation. Like, I feel like when I see an athlete, I can assess the issue. I kind of have an idea of how much damage there is. I can kind of give them somewhat of a realistic timeline so they know what they're going back to. So when you see like a general physician, they're going to be give you the most conservative situation because they're assuming everybody's going to do something stupid. So they're like, okay, don't go back for 
four months because maybe it takes four months for the tissue to regain that that resiliency it had before but that doesn't mean you do nothing in four months you do things to get it back sports specifically maybe we can do some modified sports specific stuff at like two months or three months so you're not going back to nothing you know you know other things you can do when someone's an injury is if you can manage you know cardiovascular stuff because one i think if we get their cardiovascular system better it's going to help their body overall heal i mean athletes do better in general but two the the thing that you don't want to happen is you let that athlete get back after deconditioned now they're going to hurt themselves when they go back because they're going to go back full bore as opposed to if you do a slow graded exposure to the activity slowly building up their cardio I mean, I'm sure you've done this before where you maybe you took some time off and you, and you come back. I mean, this is probably really big for a lot of people with COVID, when COVID happened, that most people had some period of detraining where they weren't training and then they had to go back. And that period usually sucked because your cardio was terrible and you wanted to keep pushing. And it's even worse if you had some people that came back at different times, like maybe some someone came back after three months someone came after six so maybe you know you're an advanced belt and you're rolling with that guy who's has been rolling for three months but they're like a purple belt and because their cardio is so much better they're pushing you now you're like i don't want to tap to this guy so you know i i think having like a realistic plan really helps athletes because that gives them an idea of like what they can expect and they're not just going to ignore the advice of the healthcare professional which is also really common and i think because i do jiu-jitsu my my patients usually listen to me more because like in a lot of situations like i'm getting them back and then i get to train with them right so like they're a training partner <laughs> and then you get to injure them and send them back to yeah. you so it's like the cycle <laughs> continues <laughs> it's like a lead generation system <laughs> yeah everyone always accuses me they're like did you do that on purpose i'm like no i didn't <laughs> Well, can you do me a favor just for retention? Can you quickly recap that peace and love thing, what it stands for one more time? Okay. Yeah. So peace and love is the first phase is protection, elevation, avoid anti-inflammatories, compression, and education. Again, when it comes to ice, it really depends on the person. Like some people, I will let ice if they're in a lot of pain because I'd rather, like if you're having these high amounts of pain, it's better to ice, right? Then when it comes to love, love is load, optimism, vascularization, and exercise. Again, vascularization and exercise is just we want to get that blood flowing. We want to give them appropriate exercise because we know it's going to help. Got it. Can you help me just quickly understand something? You talked about how the inflammatory response is important because mm -hmm. that means that your body is healing. Correct. But you also talked about how excessive swelling is bad. And I'd just like to know, like, why is that? Why is there a sweet spot? Well, because what happens is so again, when some people come to me, they obviously have a lot of problems. Like if someone has a lot of swelling, it's likely going to affect their mobility because now they're going to lose range of motion, some capacity with their certain end ranges. So you take like the knee, right? So like someone's knee swollen now because their knee swollen, maybe they can't fully straighten their knee because they can't fully straighten the knee. Now their walking is going to be off, which is going to perpetuate. And it's going to kind of like create this limp and it's going to make it, the knee is going to get more irritated. Then you take for jujitsu, obviously we need to be able to bend our knees because we have to kneel. That's usually like, that's one of my return to sport criteria when I get, when I work with someone with a knee injury is like, can you kneel, right? Because if you can't kneel, what's going to happen if someone tries to sweep you, bump you back, it's going to get irritated or compressed, you know? So we want to get that swelling out. So it's okay that, that the inflammatory process starts, but then we need to get it out, which personally, my favorite way to get rid of swelling is movement and compression. So if you're if you're every day-to-day -day person, you can wear a knee sleeve. I even recommend wearing a knee sleeve for certain people if they're dealing with a mild injuries like while rolling, right? Because we know that that activity might create some swelling, but we want to combat that so it doesn't go over the top, right? Because I always wear knee sleeves on both my knees when I'm yeah. rolling. Like regardless of whether I've had an injury or not, I always wear them. Yeah. So that's kind of like why it's tricky. So again, you don't want if, – if you start – if you stop the inflammatory process too soon – now you're you're essentially you're delaying the healing process so maybe it takes longer for that tissue whatever that injured tissue to get strong and resilient again well let me maybe just elaborate on my statement there do you recommend the use of compression accessories for someone who is not currently rehabbing an injury like if my knees are currently okay is it harmful to me in any way to just wear knee sleeves or elbow sleeves just because? Like, is that going to help prevent injuries or will it cause problems? I've kind of, I've heard conflicting opinions on this as to whether or not these are good things to just wear all the time versus when you're rehabbing. 
I don't think it's bad. It wouldn't stop the inflammatory process. It would just stop the accumulation of swelling. But I don't think it's necessary. I know my instructor, he likes wearing knee sleeves because he's bad knees. I, again, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think they really give you support. Some people like compression things because it, it gives them like a little bit more awareness of that joint. Maybe it keeps mm -hmm. it warm so they like it better. So I'm kind of neutral. It doesn't hurt, but I don't think it really has a benefit if you like it cool i know a lot of 10th planet athletes will use them just because it's like a it's almost a way to make pseudo grips because mm -hmm. you know like i remember i think it was like george sutteropolis i and, remember this exactly he was basically like covered from the waist down yeah. when he was in the cage yeah yeah exactly i mean so again like if you if you're a guy and you're dependent on that to, to play a good guard i mean cool i that makes sense i guess but from an injury perspective i don't think it necessarily will help but i don't think it'll hurt yeah, I remember last time I had a knee injury when I was on the, you know, when I got back onto the mats, I got an upgraded knee brace, one of the ones with the like hinge support on the yeah, side. Yeah. And what I found is that, you know, <laughs> to my opponent's detriment, that made my knee on belly and my knee cut passing a lot stronger. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly you've got the, you're basically just ramming a piece of metal into yeah, someone. Yeah. So you have to be careful if you're using those guys. Of course, yeah. Yeah, so th that's a really interesting thing. And I would wonder from your standpoint, what are the most common jujitsu injuries Injuries that you see. I mean, I've got some guesses as to what they would be, but I'd just be curious if you have some metrics as to what the most common types of injuries are that we're going to encounter in this so-called gentle art of ours. So we could break it down to overuse and we could break it down to traumatic. I would say the number one injury is elbow and it's generally from an armbar. And what it comes down to is because the armbar, there's a greater degree that it can get stretched before you're going to have like really serious injuries. People are more prone to just let their arms kind of get stretched out a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. some people are a little bit too gung-ho to just accept pops because when something pops in your elbow, it doesn't mean it's nothing, right? Like people are like, oh, it just popped a few times. Like that means something, it might not be like, like, a, like a really big injury, but like it's not good to just let your elbow get popped, popped repeatedly. So elbows are the number one for traumatic. The, the second one would be knee. And I think traumatic knee injuries tend to be with takedowns or scrambles. Those are usually like the more serious ligament injuries. Then we take overuse. I would say a lot of jujitsu athletes have their necks are really messed up, generally because they try to withstand chokes. And, and this happens a little bit more in nogi because like in the gi, the gi makes the chokes a little bit cleaner. In nogi, you have a combination of whether it's choking or cranking. So some people try to like tough out the crank. So they end up kind of like overloading their neck. Uh. You know, like I was talking about elbow issues. A lot of times people get overuse that, that tendinopathy from too much grips. I would say that those are kind of like the, the big ones from what I see. I mean, there is always people who get their shoulders cranked with Kimuras. I actually think that a lot of people have like very low key ankle injuries just because for some reason people have this weird thing where they don't like tapping to foot locks maybe because it's further away. So it's very common for people to just let their foot get stretched and they just don't care, mm -hmm. you know? So, but those tend to not be as significant, like causing trauma. I mean, they do cause trauma, but it's usually not as problematic as some of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, I would also add on top of that, that I'm sure an injury that you see a lot, especially for gi grapplers is finger injuries. I True. mean, people yeah. who play very, very grippy based games, their fingers are all fucked up. Like my, I, I know this guy, Scott Boudreau here uh, in Vancouver, he's a multi-time world champion and man, like his fingers are like sausages. He's been doing like Kyokushin all his life. <laughs> and, and he's, uh, uh, I think a, two-stripe black belt now in jiu-jitsu and like I said a multi-time world champion and like his fingers are like oh god they're just like all screwed up and I I'm terrified of you know winding up like that because I, I mean I'm a desk jockey right yeah. I do a lot of typing during the day to the point where I've, I've actually adapted my game I very rarely do grip like gi grip based stuff now I prefer to use no gi techniques even in the gi because I I like my fingers yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's funny that you say that because I actually I actually do the same thing but that was just because, like, when I started jiu-jitsu, I, I started no gi. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, start, I put the gi on when I was a white belt, so it wasn't like I got that far, but I still, like, just felt more comfortable no gi. So I never really got into the grip-based game. Well, that, what's so cool about jiu-jitsu, it's such a vast art. Like, I'm saving that for, like, maybe, like, later in my life where I might start learning more of the gi stuff. You know, but, like, I'm a, I'm a physical therapist. I do manual therapy. Like, I mm -hmm. use my hands 
to like work with people. Like I can't have those like gnarled claws like you see like the meows or Keenan Cornelius have. Like yeah, I think they like I think Keenan said once he can't make a fist anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? There, there there was a picture once of like the meows hands and if you didn't know who they were, you'd think it was like the hands of someone who's like 80 years old. Like it just looked like this old man gnarled claw. Like it looked terrible. Yeah. I do find it interesting that people will just espouse the health benefits of jujitsu, but then they'll rack up these stupid and totally preventable injuries that fucked them up for the rest of their lives. I mean, yeah. there, there's a lot of dogma around this where people, you know, people will go on about jujitsu and it's incredible health benefits. I, I, yeah. I don't want to name names, but Ooh. I was also watching some um, MMA guy here up in Canada who was posting on social media about the incredible health benefits of MMA. And like, look, I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of health benefits to MMA in terms of what it's going to do for your cardio and all of that. But are you seriously going to try to convince me that like going and doing professional cage fighting and getting punched full force in the face repeatedly, like, are we really going to try to convince ourselves that that is somehow a health benefit? Like, let's, yeah. let's be honest about the strengths and limitations of these activities. Let's not try to gaslight ourselves. Yeah, like there, exactly. there's a lot of dogma around what we do and whether it's actually good for us. And I was talking to Matt Kirtley recently better known as Aesopian, one of the, the lead moderators on Reddit's BJJ community. And he was talking about how, you know, when he was young and starting out, he was given all of this, you know, guidance from the these like professors about, how, oh yeah, you got to be tough and you got to toughen yourself through it. And he regrets following that advice now because he incurred so many avoidable and preventable injuries just because he thought that he had to do like jungle fighting, right? yeah. you know, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and one thing that I have learned from, you know, 12 plus years of jujitsu is that it's really not a good idea to take life advice from like people who grew up in Brazilian street fights. True. I mean, yeah. Hey, that logic might work in the way that they, they think might be effective if you want to focus on Brazilian street fighting. But <laughs> if you want to be a, like more of a martial artist and more of a scientist in your approach, right. Versus just like sacrificing your body at all costs, you you can't just subscribe to this dogma that jujitsu is always good for you no matter what. Like it's possible to seriously harm yourself doing this stuff. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by not being honest and upfront to people about what they should kind of avoid and how to do injury prevention. So like one of the things is is like the gripping, right? You know, we, we talk for ages about, oh, spider guard this, spider guard that, but very few instructors will actually teach their students how to grip to avoid injury and when they shouldn't grip, right? Yeah. Similar thing that comes up, I mean, knee injuries, right? Extraordinarily common in jiu-jitsu and they can really set you back. That's a terrible injury to get. I don't think I've ever heard an instructor other than myself explain to people how you should position your body such to avoid those injuries in the first place, yeah. right? We, we put these white belts into a room and we make them fight and we make them scramble and dogpile all over each other, but we, we don't do that and teach them like the proper body alignment to prevent these kinds of injuries. And the reality is if you're conscious and mindful of where your limbs are placed, you can avoid a lot of these injuries, right? And prevention is way better than cure when it comes to injury rehab. 100%. You know, I, I, so you brought up a whole bunch of good points. And I think, unfortunately, people don't really think of prevention. They don't really care until their 30s and their bodies are starting to break down. It's just unfortunate. Like, you know, like I've been trying to like push the, you know, prevention thing. Like that just doesn't sound sexy. Nobody cares, right? Like they just, they, they just wait. Their body starts falling apart and now they want to get it back, you mm -hmm. know? Which is just an unfortunate thing, which which I agree that one of the things that, that I do and one of the things that I try to push for my page is try to remind people that jujitsu is beneficial to your life. Like you were saying, like it encourages me to be active. There's a reason that I need to eat healthy to maintain my physical capacity because I like being able to do jujitsu. But jujitsu alone is not enough. And you know, I do think that people should be doing some kind of supplemental movement training, some kind of supplemental strength and conditioning. And I say strength and conditioning because it really depends on the person. A lot of people don't necessarily need the extra conditioning. And kind of like when I'm working with someone, you kind of have to like, you know, figure out like what what is their like lowest hanging, hanging fruit and that's what we attack. 
but I do think that you're, you're a grappler in your 30s. You should be doing something to maintain your body so that you can do jiu-jitsu for long periods of time. So like you said, jiu-jitsu can be good for your body, but jiu-jitsu alone is not enough. It's going to break you down. We like My goal, like, you know, Helio Gracie was doing jiu-jitsu until like, you know, he was doing some form of jiu-jitsu into his 90s. Like, was he rolling mm-hmm. with everyone? No. He would be doing like, you know, mount stuff, like being in mount positions to try to show that he couldn't get submitted but like i feel like that's kind of like the goal like i want to be that guy who's in the 70s and his 80s and i'm doing some aspect of martial arts as opposed to those people that do jujitsu and then they get to their 30s their body's so broken down like they have to quit completely so yeah yeah i do think trying to think from a long-term perspective that you do you take care of some of these practices to ensure that your body can survive the rigors of jujitsu is really important you know and and that kind of goes to what you were saying about like body position and and i think the problem is that some people they try to do positions that their body isn't ready for like inverting is a perfect example like is inverting bad for you not necessarily is it good i mean obviously you are risk it is a somewhat risky position but i feel like it's problematic for people who invert who don't have the ability to so maybe they're trying to invert maybe their back doesn't move that well or their neck doesn't move that well so when they get there they're just loading up their neck and they do it over and over and over again those people mm-hmm. get problems you know with like the knee right like maybe i'm doing certain positions and people just force their knee like you know you know i have a patient he blew his acl because he was forcing a knee slice slice pass like he just forced his knee through huh you know what i mean like stuff like that where it's like you know you have to kind of understand what your body's meant for and i think some people just do it and i think from that that's the one problem with like a group class like let's say you have 20 people in the class and you're teaching a triangle I think most people can do some variation of the triangle and there's ways that you can regress if you need, but not everyone should be doing it the same way. Like I'm a fairly lanky guy. Like I can do a triangle wrong and I can still get someone to tap. Again, if you, like you, you said you're like a short stocky person, you might not be able to do that, but that doesn't mean you can't make it work. You just have to kind of change the technique and make your jujitsu work for your body as opposed to making your body like forcing your body to do jiu-jitsu is not ready for it. Yeah, I think that we often don't take this into account when we teach techniques. You know, we kind of insist that every technique will work for everybody, but that simply is just not really true, right? Different body types and different games, they they favor different techniques. There are some moves where I, I try them and it just feels like this is just not for me. It's not for my body. But then there's other moves that the first time I try it, it's like it's already in my muscle memory. It just mm-hmm. comes so naturally to me. And I think that, you know, again, maybe this is just because the instructor to student ratio is so big, but it really feels like a lot of the time we're not in, properly informing people of how body types can cause like this massive discrepancy in terms of what's a good idea for you and what's not. I, I would say that in terms of what I like to tell people in terms of how to prevent injury. I mean, I think a common mistake that happens really injuries happen most of the time in jujitsu when you leave a lever dangling, meaning like an arm, a leg or your neck and you're not in control of it anymore. And this Mm -hmm. is very common for white belts and even blue belts because they haven't yet learned to think like an octopus where they're always mindful of where their arms and their legs and their neck are. Like usually they're paying attention to where their hands are, but they're not thinking of using their legs like limbs. They're just kind of sitting there. So they'll do like some crazy backflip and forget that the other dude is like entangled around their leg or they'll leave their leg dangling and the other dude will do a backflip, not realizing what's going to happen to your leg. So the advice I give to newbies is like, keep your limbs inside the vehicle at all times, right? Keep your, your legs pulled in close, keep your elbows tight, keep your, your neck kind of hidden, like, you know, tucked in like a turtle and really only stick something out. If you know for certain that it's a good idea, (laughs) like if you know, you can do it safely and the guy's not going to backflip and tear your arm off then you can do it but if you don't know for certain that this is a good situation to stick something out bad idea Absolutely. so generally in jujitsu and in grappling you want to keep the limbs and that includes your head like coiled in tight and you only stick them out when you know for certain that it's, it's a good idea the default should be everything is coiled in because yeah. i think that prevents the like white belt scrambling where these people are just flailing all over each other and then suddenly someone's shoulder gets twisted behind their back and they're off the mats for nine months right yeah, that's the absolutely. thing you want to avoid. One other thing I'd like to touch on, I'd like to get your opinion on 
carotid restraints, because this is something that, again, in terms of like advice I never should have taken, I totally drank the Kool-Aid when I joined jujitsu and I, everyone, you know, all of these people with zero medical background swore up and down that carotid restraints are totally safe. It's just like breathing. There's zero damage. Nothing can ever go wrong. It's perfectly safe. And more and more, I'm starting to see these stories of people who are suffering strokes or other arterial damage because they didn't tap, or maybe they even did and just they they got an injury here. I'd love to get your like real honest perspective on carotid restraints and how to use those safely and what kind of risks we need to look out for and when we need to be concerned. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting topic. So I think that there is becoming more awareness of strokes and stuff happening. So usually a stroke would be you'd get a carotid artery dissection. So there's going to be some kind of either a tear in the, the carotid artery or maybe there will be some kind of blockage and then the blockage would go to the brain. So I don't know if there's a clear way to that would describe like what would create that carotid artery distension. It doesn't mean like it's going to happen right away. Like there's some people, their carotid artery is like blocked and they have no idea. Right. So I would say it's not necessarily like getting choked out that would do it. It might be just like excessively resisting chokes, right? Where there's like Mm -hmm. all this pressure and vibration and kind of like stuff on the carotid. I think over time, when I say over time, like years and years and years of doing that, it could develop some problems. You know, some kind of like things that you would ever worry about or like warning signs. Like maybe if you start feeling like like after after training, you kind of feel like you're moving around. Or your, or your training partners are like, they almost like seem like they're drunk, whether they're not really making sense or not understanding you, whether, you know, you're, you're starting to potentially you could have like, feel like you're going to faint even after it's over. Potentially, if, if you feel like you move your neck in a certain way and you feel like it's going to faint, that would be a problem where, okay, maybe you have some kind of carotid artery blockage. Maybe you should go get it checked. You know, it is kind of tricky from a medical perspective because, again, it is very, very, very rare, but it is something that can happen. I don't, like I said, I don't think that necessarily just getting strangled and going to sleep is going to make that worse. I don't know if we know what the long-term effects of going to sleep are. I don't think it's necessarily, like some people try to compare it to like you might get CTE from it, which from the research that I've seen, it doesn't seem like it's there. You know, so I'd be more worried about those people that just fight that choke forever and ever and ever. You know, and like, again, I think it could be a little bit more with a no-gi choke just because they tend to maybe not get as clean of a choke. So you're kind of like in that position for a while where there's trauma on the neck and then on the front of the neck. But like I said, it, it is kind of a tricky situation because it's so rare, but people do need to be aware that it can happen. I remember one time I was sparring with a guy and he triangled me and I had my arm in in the position where, you know, it wasn't going across. So it was uncomfortable. Like I could tell that there was some constriction going on, but I didn't feel like I was going to pass out. Yeah. So I tried to tough it out and I'm sitting there in that position for like a good minute trying to defend. And then all of a sudden my, my partner just stops and says, holy shit, are you okay? And I feel totally fine. I'm like, Yeah. yeah, I'm totally fine. Why not? And he says, your entire face is red. So I get up and I look in the mirror and like every blood vessel in my face is burst. I look completely red. So my my question there is how much brain damage did I do to myself that day? Well, so I'd love to know. Well, here's the thing. And this is what's interesting with chokes. So they actually did some study on, on carotid artery and like when they do a restraint, like what's going on and to technically put someone to sleep, what you're not actually doing is you don't, you don't completely occlude the artery. What you do is you put pressure on the artery and then there's a receptor in the neck that's saying, oh, there's reduced blood flow. So then it reduces capacity to the brain and that, that's what puts someone to sleep. Mm-hmm. But, but technically you have to do both carotid arteries, both the right and the left. If you're, not, if you're only blocking one, that you're not going to put someone to sleep. And I know there are some people that say like, oh, I did it on one side of someone they went to sleep. The things you have to consider is maybe that one person did have some kind of blockage in one of their artery, which is dangerous. But there's also like certain neck positions, like maybe there was their carotid artery was compressed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, like you're only going to put someone to sleep if both carotid arteries are blocked. So in a case like you, maybe they only blocked one side. So the blood flow was reduced, but not enough to actually make you feel like you were going to go to sleep. You know what I mean? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. I mean, I guess there's another question with chokes, like 
when is the right time to tap? Because you're right, some people will just tap as soon as they know it's basically game over. I mean, that's kind of, I think, a more advanced thing because you have to know when that is. But some people, like, they will wait until they're almost dead. They will wait until time slows down and they hear funny noises. Yeah, and they're, yeah, like, yeah. staring off into the astral plane. And then finally they'll tap. Absolutely. And that can't be smart. I'm just wondering, is there any general guidance for when the right time is to tap from a blood choke? I don't think so. I mean, blood... Blood chokes tend to take, on average, 9 to 11 seconds, I believe. So, you know, I, I would say that if you're worried about going to sleep, maybe after a few seconds, like five seconds, you're not going to get out at that point. Like, why? You know, I, I think, like, some people – competition is a different story because competition, depending on how big – and, again, it's the level of the competition. Like, you're a professional fighter. You're making $100,000. This is the finals of ADCC. Like, obviously, things are different. But, like, in training, I just think that sometimes people are, like – they're just not willing to tap and, you know, I mean, that, that's probably like the easiest way to not get injuries is just tap, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and, and this is like what I always tell people, like, even though I'm not like an official instructor where I train, like, you know, I fill up, I fill in for people. Like, I'm like, I tap to people who are lower ranked than me. So I'm like, if I tap, why do you guys care? You know, oh, yeah. I think, I've, I've tapped to white belts, to blue yeah. belts. Like I, my goal is to learn and to come back tomorrow. My goal is exactly. not to win the gym medals. Like there yeah. are no gym medals at my gym. Maybe there are at someone else's. Uh, yeah. And I think that's a good strategy. I mean, yeah. when you get more experienced, you get to the point where you know when it's checkmate, right? Yeah. Like sometimes I'm in a choke and I'm not even like, I'm not even about to go out, but I know like it's done. So yeah. I'll just tap. It's, it's yeah. obvious. You have the benefit of that when you've been training for a long time. But I think for beginners, it's tough because they don't know when it's too late. Yeah. I mean, with chokes, at least you can feel it. You brought up a great point with footlocks, which is that for some beginners, they don't even know they're in trouble, right? You put yeah. them in a footlock and they don't even know they're in a submission <laughs> yeah, true. until it's too late. So there's something to be said about the value of experience. And I, I think when you're a beginner, especially when you're in the gym, you just need to err on the side of caution. And if you don't think you can get out, if you're not sure, it's probably best to just tap and live to fight another day, right? Rather than trying to figure it out and risk like leaving a limb behind and really injuring yourself. I would say that if you're, if something is stuck and you're in an unfamiliar position and you're not sure what's going to happen next and one of your levers, meaning you're a head, yeah. you know, your head, an arm, a leg is tied up, it's probably best to just concede the day and ask an instructor what the hell just happened rather than trying to like, you know, do like a quadruple flip out of that submission and possibly Absolutely. tear something in the process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. if, you, if you ever like listen to people like Marcelo Garcia, like he talks about getting tapped by like a lot of his students, you know, mm -hmm. like Gary Tone and people will be like, wow, this guy's getting tapped all the time. Well, he's also putting himself in these really bad submissions. So mm -hmm. he's getting tapped by these blue belts and purple belts or whatever. But like if these people who are like some of the highest level in jujitsu, they tap again. Who cares? Just tap. It's not a big deal, you know? Yeah, we had uh, someone, I think it was Cabrinha, came to our gym one time, and he was just having, like, fun competitive practice with one of our purple belts. And, like, he didn't appear to have any ego about looking bad in front of this purple belt. You know, he was giving him stuff. They were working. They were doing real jujitsu. Yeah. You know, and this guy could have come in, and he could have just wrecked shop on the entire gym to prove his dominance, but he didn't do that, right? Yeah. He's, he's there to train, and I appreciate that because that's how it's supposed to be. I agree. Cool. Well, I mean, I really appreciated all this, man. Thanks a lot. I guess as we tie this up, any closing thoughts? Like, are there any must do things or must do not things <laughs> that you would say for all grapplers? Like if, if people can take something away from this and immediately improve and reduce their risk of injury going forward or improve the rehab process, what are some hard do's and don'ts that you would leave yeah. people with before we close the show? So two things that I already said but i will reiterate i do think it's important for grapplers and to do some kind of supplementary strength and conditioning and mobility practice right because i feel that you're going to get injured like again the for the most part strength training has been shown to be the best thing when it comes to reducing overuse injuries and it kind of makes sense if you think about it right because strength is the ability to overcome a stress or the ability to absorb a stress injuries occur when some kind of specific tissues capacity to tolerate stress is overloaded so the stronger we can get that tissue the less chance it's going to get overloaded mm -hmm. you know so again i think strength and conditioning is really important you know when it comes to the conditioning standpoint again it depends on the person I think that a lot of times it's very common where people did that one more round 
they're in a fatigue state, that's when some bad stuff happens. So, you know, but I'm not trying to say you should become a power lifter or a marathon runner. You should be doing something to supplement your jujitsu because your goal is not to be strong for a strong man or to be fast or endurance for like a marathon runner. It's to be good at jujitsu. You know, I do think that it's good to have enough mobility for the positions that you're required to do. So if you want to have a, a fancy guard game, you want to do inverting, you better make sure that your ability can get there. And if you can't, you should figure out what you need to do to get there. You know, I, I do think that a lot of jiu-jitsu athletes would, would respond well to having good, robust, mobile spines, good, robust, mobile hips, because these are some things that we... You know, we, we put our, our body in these really awkward positions, and not only do we have to be able to get there, we have to be strong there. You know, whether it's once or twice a week or something, you should be doing something. You know, and I also think, too, is like when you take, like, as as an athlete, like maybe, you know, most people aren't going to be professional jiu-jitsu athletes because that's really rare to make enough money. You know, like maybe you're, you know, you know, like you're working a job. I know it's hard because you want to do jujitsu as your as your thing, but I do think it's a good idea to find. I mean, it could even be like ten or fifteen minutes a day of something, right? Like it could be some stretching something specifically, or maybe you're just doing squats or something like that. My next follow up point would be to definitely link up with some kind of professional. It's not bad to talk to a strength and conditioning coach, even just to kind of get a, like a base program. I think it's a good idea to, to have a physical therapist, a chiropractor, an athletic trainer, somebody who you know who can give you good medical advice. Again, even if your job is just, hey, my ankle popped, I want to see you one time, let's figure what this is, let's develop a plan. It doesn't necessarily, physical therapy doesn't need to necessarily be like 10 visits or you know, but the key thing is I don't want you to think that you're going to go see that PT and they're going to cure you in one visit. Really, their goal is to develop a plan, be like, this is what you can expect from this injury. This is kind of this first phase of how it would handle it. Injuries go through different phases. You go through that acute phase, that second phase. A lot of people, when they're athletes, they stop rehab a little bit too soon, right? So like they have an injury, they go while it's like acutely injured. Then they get to that subacute phase where maybe they're they're doing some like more functional movement patterns and they might give up at that point but they never really like take it further where they're in that strengthening or sports specific things so we make sure you get back to training appropriately so you know like i said do some strength and conditioning know a good strength coach know a good pt if you got injury don't think that you're gonna be able to diagnose it on instagram like i kind of went away like as much as I would like to, and I know I'd probably get more followers because I did go through this dilemma, do I want to just put more exercises and things like that on Instagram? And again, I know I would grow my platform much further, but from a, an ethical standpoint, ultimately, I think you need to talk to someone. And it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't necessarily need to be a jujitsu trained you know, physical therapist, but you should have someone who could help you guide you through the process and then obviously there, there are some people that if you can you know a physical therapist or a chiropractor that does jujitsu they would be you know, kind of like the icing on the cake someone who really can specifically help you get back to jujitsu have you considered selling healing crystals <laughs> i wish <laughs> <laughs> well but yeah seriously i mean every time i've had a significant injury i've gone to a physiotherapist and it's always been extremely helpful both because it helps, but yeah. also because it informed me and it gave me the confidence that I was doing the right thing. And that yeah. helped me both from a physical and a mental standpoint to get back into the game in a, a relatively quick time. And yeah. also to make me feel like the rehab time was not time wasted because I knew yeah, yeah, I was yeah. doing the, the most optimal thing to get better sooner rather than later. And every time I've had to go to physio, I, I mean, granted, I've been relatively lucky in terms of not suffering a catastrophic injury, but I was always able to come back just as strong as when I left. So yeah. definitely a shout out to physiotherapists everywhere. So Mike, thanks again for joining us. If people want to check you out or follow you or see your work, how do they go about doing that? So the best place to reach me would be Instagram. And my, my name would be the word doctor spelled out 
underscore kickass, so doctor underscore kickass. I have a website, which is www.drkickass.com, one word. I'm also on Facebook. I think Facebook is the same. I think it's Dr. Kickass DPT. That would be the ways, the best ways to reach me. You know, and if you have any questions or you, there's a topic you want me to cover, you know, I'm okay with people DMing me and kind of like, you know, asking me things. Just as a side note, and I get these a lot, I can't diagnose people over Instagram. So people ask what their injury is. I don't, I won't be able to tell you. I think that's important to understand. I mean, I know yeah. everyone wants a magic prepackaged perfect answer, but yeah. asking a doctor to diagnose you over Instagram is kind of a challenging thing. Yes, so yes. Maybe advisable to go and see a specialist in person. So I, I, like you said, I think that every good athlete is going to have a physio or a doctor as part of their network to help out with these issues. Like you see Absolutely. this a lot. I remember when I talk to high level guys, like they don't just show up to some random doctor that they've never met before. They have a doctor or they have a physiotherapist who's effectively on their team and helps them and understands their goals. Absolutely. Anyway, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming by, Mike. And of course, to all of our listeners, if you want to help us keep the lights on, patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. The patrons are the true heroes here. They're the ones who allow us to keep the lights on and to grow the product and make it even better. There's a whole world of premium stuff in that Patreon if you're not already on there that you're missing out on. So please do consider it. Patrons have tons of benefits, which are documented on the website. But among the highlights, of course, we've got our awesome Discord community access to premium podcast content and narrated footage reviews from Matt and myself. So you can submit your footage and we'll break it down and give you a technical feedback. So please do consider that if you haven't already. There's no commitment beyond month to month. So that's patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. That's the gateway to the premium experience there. So thank you again. And of course, if you want to learn more about the concepts that we talk about on the show or get in touch with us, bjjmentalmodels.com is where all of that is documented and there's a handy contact form to shoot me a message. Mike, Dr. Kickass, thank you so much for coming on here. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for sharing all this information. It was helpful to me selfishly and I think it'll also be helpful to everyone else listening. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be on. No problem. And of course, to all of the listeners, as always, thanks again for spending your time here with us. Talk to you guys next time. Bye.